Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. family, it's Thursday, which means it's time for another episode of the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. This is episode 9 of season 2, Living the Dream. In this season, I'll be chatting with some of the most successful barbecue entrepreneurs out there about the different types of businesses you can get into and what it takes to be successful. Have you ever had the experience where you've cooked something absolutely amazing and you really want to share it with the world, but if you come even close to it with a camera, all you get is a pile of dog food? Being able to cook something that tastes great and make it look great is a massive challenge, and that's where today's guest comes in. Today, I'm chatting with Adam from Primal Iron. Adam is a barbecue competitor, French-trained chef, and now works with authors as a food stylist. That's right, he now makes a living making food look good. This is going to be a great episode for those of you who are looking to make your presentation boxes look better and get that perfect shot for Instagram. So let me get out of the way, grab some fatty brisket slices and something cold to drink, and let's get into the world of a professional food stylist. This is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Support for this episode comes from Harvey's Kitchen. Harnessing over 25 years' experience in commercial kitchens and catering, Harvey's has a burning passion for food and they make amazing barbecue flavor easy to achieve for all levels of barbecue. Their entire product range is handcrafted locally in Brisbane from quality ingredients and they've gone out of their way to make their products easy to use with simple features like resealable bags. I've played around with their butcher's box and have found their preservative, gluten and dairy-free rubs and sauces to be top-notch stuff. The Butcher's Box has nine rubs and six sauces in it. I love the ginger citrus salt on chicken wings and the hop and habanero hot sauce on everything. Right now, Harvey's is offering Smoking Hot Confessions listeners an exclusive 20% discount. Yes, 20%. All you need to do is head on over to harveyskitchen.com.au and use the code word CONFESSIONS to get your hands on some today. Once again, head over to harveyskitchen.com.au and use the code word CONFESSIONS at checkout for 20% off your order. Welcome to The Confessional, Adam. The first question I have to ask is, what was the last thing that you barbecued? Unfortunately, I have to say the last thing I barbecued was at Port Macquarie and uh, it was the last thing we presented was uh, beef brisket. Um, not to say I haven't eaten any barbecue since then, been around to the boys' houses and uh, had some pulled lamb and pulled pork on the weekend. Oh, fantastic. I have a little confession to make as well. Um, that was actually the last time I cooked anything as well, except I uh, bagged a whole bunch of it up and brought it home and we've been eating it out of the freezer for the last couple of weeks. Uh, nice, nice. Yeah, Definitely. Mate, I love the team name and the logo for Primal Lion Barbecue. Can you tell me the backstory of your team? Well, Primal Iron. So Primal Iron come about uh, with a friend of mine, Damien Draper, um, also an ex-chef. Um, we wanted to get into barbecue. Both of us had a really keen interest for it. And it come about because we thought as chefs we can bring something to the table with barbecue. And me having worked in the American realm for a little while, thought this could be a quite cool transition, but we wanted to do something a little more than just 
a competition barbecue team that had a really sort of quirky name to do with barbecue. Um, we wanted to create a brand that we could take forward and possibly do other things with, whether that fall into the food styling realm, specifically in American barbecue, or it fall into branding of merchandise. So that's why we come up with Prime Alliance. So the name um, we came up with because we wanted to think of what it is we were trying to achieve. We're cooking over fire. We're using big, heavy iron contraptions to cook with, and we found that really primal. Um, so Primal Iron was born out of going back many, many times over different names. But that's that's the basis of it all. So, And then the logo coming along, a gorilla, I don't think there's anything more primal than that. And you know what? I just think he looks cool smoking a cigar. And it seems to catch everyone's eye. So, yeah, that's a bit of the backstory. Yeah, mate, that is one of the coolest logos that I've seen out there. And I believe you love it so much, you actually got it tattooed on your body, didn't you? Yeah. So I think the Gorilla logo was a bit of a brainstorm between all of us, a Gorilla being primal. But I'd always envisaged getting some sort of cool Gorilla face on my body somewhere. And when the logo came up, I jumped onto it and I thought, that's that's going on my arm, no worries. And within a couple of months, went and saw my tattoo I've been going to for 20 years and had it on my arm. Yeah, it's it's very cool. I just hope you don't ever decide to change the logo. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, well, I'm stuck with it now. So <laughs> yeah. I, I think, uh, I think a, a free logo is uh, out of the question. Yeah. So, mate, you mentioned that your team name came about. The, the iron part of your name was to do with the – the smokers that you use, what actual smokers do uh, like does Primal Iron use? Um, so at the moment we're cooking on – we're doing the majority of our cooking on a Yoda. So um, in this whole process leading up to it, we, we approached Yoda Australia and saw what we could do in the way of getting a Yoda up to Queensland because um, – the market was sort of flooded with reverse flow smokers. And we, after doing some research, having gone to the States, um, direct uh, flow through smokers seemed to be the way we wanted to go. And we're really getting used to it now and really loving it. Um, the only thing we don't like is trying to get it on and off a trailer. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. much the same problem I have with mine. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, 550 kilos worth of uh, a whole heap of hurt to the back. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's that's literally twice the weight of mine. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big beast. What is it, like a 24-inch or a 30-inch? or? It's a 24-inch, yeah. Yikes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, solid iron indeed. <laughs> yeah, serious real estate there. Yeah. And so is that what you cook on at home or is that just your comp cart? Um, so we we share it around. Um, it's currently living at my house. Um, at home, I have a little Pro-Q. Um, I've just borrowed a Kamado to do some cooking on. And I, I have this old 
wine barrel that's been converted into a cold smoker, which I do a little bit of stuff in every now and then when I get an opportunity to. Ooh, I've heard about them. How does it go? Um, it goes really well. I um, we'll talk about some food styling a bit later, but I did a little project for Queen Vanilla um, where I smoked a heap of vanilla beans in there and they turned out amazing. Yeah, right. What what would they go into? Um, so in a restaurant scenario, I would use them in like a custard. You could do a smoked vanilla custard, a creme brulee, a panna cotta, um, ice creams, stuff like that. Yeah. It's just um, they they come up amazing, surprisingly amazing. Wow. I, I love custard, mate. I, I, I can sit there and just drink it by the litre. Yeah, and if it was smoked, it'd be even better. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. So, mate, what was your introduction to low and slow barbecue? Um, introduction to low and slow. Um, I watch food trends pretty closely, I suppose, and have done over my whole career as a chef. Um, I had my own place at the time when it really started to come to the forefront. And having your own restaurant gives you a little bit more scope to do what you want, I suppose, and... I started to have these these things creep onto my menu that were things like uh, succotash, which is a Southern American dish, um, gumbo and uh, jambalaya, which I was doing in a very French way, but they all started to creep in onto the menu. And then from there, it sort of snowballed into American barbecue and, and specifically Texan barbecue that just really intrigued me and this whole cooking with wood and low smoking and stuff like that was, it was, it became quite an addiction quite quickly, I suppose. Yeah. I think, I think gumbo was a bit of a gateway for me into, uh, into American cuisine as well. I'm, I'm curious though about um, succotash. You mentioned that before. I didn't realize that that was actually a food. I've only ever heard that on the old Warner brothers cartoons, you know, suffer and succotash. Yeah, so it's a southern a southern bean dish, which is like a stew. Um, that's yeah, it's it's definitely a dish, and you can definitely find it in Southern America. It's probably more so Louisiana, I think, from memory. Um, and it'll vary from region to region what you find into it in succotash, but it'll always be a stew based with some beans and probably corn. And a lot of the time I'll have okra in there as well. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Very cool. Yeah. So you were a uh, French trained chef before getting into barbecue. What is it about barbecue that made you leave French cooking behind? Yeah. So I suppose it's all a life journey really. What I was finding throughout my career is that I was overworking food and I didn't realize that until I had my own restaurant and I was putting all this effort into all these techniques and then the manicuring of food on a plate that everything just got a little bit lost for me. And when I found American barbecue, it all just made a little bit more sense. I was always always heavily involved in using really good proteins, meats, red meats especially. Um, always been passionate about butchery. Um, 
And I suppose that lends itself hand in hand to barbecue, especially Texan barbecue and Australia. They have two. Uh, in in my mind, Texan barbecue really street, uh, suits Australian society because of the way we treat our beef and the way we, you know, everyone in Australia loves a good steak. Um, and I think that translates over once you start thinking about barbecue in the way the Americans do barbecue. It's all a coming together for a, a meal on the weekend when someone comes offers you to come around to a barbecue. It's just a different type of barbecue. It's not throwing snags on a barbecue. It's coming around and standing around a fire and watching your mate cook something exciting. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that uh, live fire is definitely a big draw card. We're all sort of drawn to the flame, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. There is um, there is just something about cooking over fire that's again going back to the team name, very primal, and it just feels right. Yeah, for sure. I just want to go back to something that you mentioned before. Um, you were talking about overworking food and how when you got introduced to American barbecue, that all sort of uh, simplified for you. That's a common theme that I pick up from from a lot of people that I talk to is that, uh, you know, most of the advice that people have for the listeners out there is keep it simple, keep it simple, keep, keep it simple. So when you say you are overworking the food, do you mean that there was, and I'm, I'm not a chef, so please forgive me not using correct terms, but do you basically mean there was too much kind of fiddling with the food? Yeah, I think I think what I mean is that starting with a raw ingredient and changing it so much that it's no longer recognisable um, and you've changed the, either the texture or the taste or the look of the product that you're working with that it's unrecognisable and sometimes I don't think that's really necessary. Um, I spent a little bit of my career doing molecular gastronomy and whilst it was really fun and interesting at the time I look back on it and I you know I wouldn't be able to go back and do that sort of stuff I just I like to enjoy a product the way it was meant to be enjoyed what's um what's molecular gastronomy so molecular gastronomy is is something you'll see um in some of the best restaurants in the world some of these the top 100 restaurants in the world will use a lot of techniques that are outside the normal techniques used by a trained chef. It'll be something where they may make a foam out of a certain liquid or they may dehydrate and um, crumble a certain ingredient or they'll aerate a certain ingredient or they'll make something um, into a liquid gel or there's many different techniques for molecular gastronomy. And I just think sometimes it just gets a little bit lost. I think it, it, it can be cool, but sometimes it's taken a little bit too far. So just because we can do it doesn't necessarily mean we should. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the people in the world doing it, some of the best restaurants in the world who are doing it really, really well have balanced the way they use these techniques and they've done it really well. Oh, interesting. Cool. So does your background in French cooking influence your barbecue? Um, 
let me think. I, I definitely think so, yes. And where it influences my cooking in barbecue is the way I'll manipulate product in the way of the way I'll trim a brisket or the way I, I will approach trimming chicken for a competition or the way in which I'll add flavor to the product. I think it definitely does. And also from a presentation point of view, I think it definitely does as well. Well, trimming chicken is always a hot topic for competition barbecuers. How does your French background affect the way you trim a chicken? Um, well, breaking down a chicken is something you learn really early on in your career as a chef. But there's also, you know, making sure the breast is in the perfect shape of a breast, that the skin is trimmed perfectly to that breast. The thigh portion, making sure the bones either end are squared off so you have this beautifully square thigh component. And the same with wings, like deboning a wing. We we did it earlier. Don't think it really worked out for us, but it's a technique that I used to add something to the barbecue. I, I deboned a chicken wing to see if that would work, if that was something we could use in barbecue. Did you actually hand that in to the judges? Yeah. Yeah, I think it probably got a little bit lost because I I don't know that – the judges would appreciate that that was actually a, a deboned chicken wing. You know, judges aren't told exactly what is in the box, and it it presented with the thighs and then a deboned chicken wing. But you know, if the judges aren't aware of what they're actually eating, that mystique or that um, extra technique is a little bit lost. I think, yeah. Well, mate, don't feel too bad about it because when I was having a chat with. Uh Andy Groneman for the podcast episode I recorded there at Burley, uh, I think it's yeah. 16 or 17, he was talking about the amazing creativity that he's seen here at, at barbecue competitions in Australia, and he specifically mentioned a deboned chicken wing. Ah, well, that's uh, that makes me feel that makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll bet it does. So, yeah, mate, yeah. What's been the high point for uh, for Prime Alliance? apart from Andy Groneman specifically mentioning your wings? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know whether I can come back from that. Um, <laughs> I think Port Macquarie. Port Macquarie is amazing. We've only been competing a little over a year, probably only have eight comps under our belt. We cook a lot. I cook a lot in general, being a chef who still moonlights as a chef. Um, but Port Macquarie with the current team form we we have about six members all up that we don't obviously all compete together um we had a great the whole journey down there the whole journey back it was a great experience and then the way all our hand-ins come together the teamwork that we put into it the the whole experience of handing everything in it was really fluid um, everyone's happy and we all worked as a team to create what we put in the hand in boxes. And I thought, you know, regardless of where we came, um, it was a great experience and really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, sounds like your the the interaction with your teammates is what really drives you. So um what what do you attribute 
such great teamwork too? Um, it's <sighs> teamwork. So I've I've been chefing now for coming up eighteen years. Um, and that's one of the things when you're in a kitchen that really keeps on driving you forward. When you're in that kitchen for 14 to 18 hours a day, you have to be in a good team environment. And if you're not, you'll never enjoy working those amount of hours. So I attribute um, the teamwork that we have with Primal Iron to that. I think bringing four individuals together to have one common goal and being organised but not being too regimented where you don't have any fun. I think that's that's been the key to our our happiness as a team, I think. Okay. And do they have um, backgrounds as chefs as well? Um, no. So Damien didn't compete with us down in Port Macquarie. Uh, he didn't make the trip. The... The guys who competed with us, two of my really good mates, um, who are super passionate about food. We eat and cook together all the time. They always supported my career, and now that I've sort of stepped back from the kitchen, we get to cook together a lot. Um, it's all been about American barbecue lately, but our families all get together, and it's the men who go and do the cooking, whether it be we have Italian nights, Indian nights, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that whole environment of us cooking together is just an extension of our day-to-day lives as friends. But um, the full team member we had down there with us, Dave Ashman from Barbecue's Glory Kiwana Waters, he was a true asset. His understanding of barbecue is phenomenal. Um after owning a barbecue galore for, I think it's coming up 30 years, he's he's seen every type of barbecue there is and seen the evolution of it all, which is amazing. And what he brought to our team was was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I've seen some of his photos on Instagram of the stuff that he's turning out on his um, uh, oh, having a mental blank, the blacks, uh, the the I've the seen many, uh, primo. Maybe. I was thinking the primo, yep, as the, well. Uh, yeah, he's he gets to cook on many different smokers, but I think he's he's really fallen in love with the primo recently. So, yeah, some of the photos of the stuff he's turning out just looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, and and the beauty of owning a barbecue shop is he gets to do it very very regularly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what does the future hold for Primal Iron? What's coming up in the pipeline for you? Um, for Primal Iron in general, I think. We're going to try and compete as many times as we can. But what we're going to do um, is, because we have excess members, we'll try and compete as many times as we can next year, but not always have the same team going to these events, but always having the same focus and be practising with each other and separately to try and perfect the way in which we barbecue. Um, the way in which we control fire, the way in which we um, present food as well. I think that's one of the major things. And just the way in which we um, work together as a team. So next year, we haven't set a calendar yet. Um, My lifestyle with the amount of jobs and projects I have on the go, it's a bit hard to 
predict, but um, between the, the five of us, I think we'll compete quite a number of times next year. This is Grant from The Smoking Joint, and I listen to Smoking Hot Confessions. Big thanks go out to Jagged Woodfide for helping me bring you this episode. Buying a smoker can be confusing. Something for low and slow, something for roasting, a pizza oven, what about baking? The Jagged Woodfired smoker does all of these things. The question is how? First, the entire smoker is fully insulated. The firebox is insulated with kiln grade bricks and there are more on the cooking chamber floor doubling as a pizza stone. The cooking chamber is then insulated with a 6cm or 2.5 inch insulation blanket. This means that the Jagged can get up to 600 degrees Fahrenheit in under 30 minutes, sit at low and slow temperatures using very little fuel, and will even sit well under 200 Fahrenheit for cold smoking. Jagged wants to make sure you have a very happy new year, and so until the end of December 2017, they're offering an exclusive discount for you Smoking Hot Confessions podcast listeners. Use the code word CONFESSIONS at checkout if buying online, or quote it when dealing with them direct for 15% off your purchase price. Head on over to jaggedoutdoorovens.com, spelled J-A-G-R-D, to learn more. Okay, we're into the second segment now, and what we're here to talk about today is food styling. So we're going to focus on that in this segment. So Adam, I'm going to start off with a uh, pretty basic question. What do food stylists actually do? What sort of projects might they get involved with? All right, so food styling can be a number of things. But the main objective of food styling is to make food look good and appealing and appetizing. So where you will see styled food is in print media. So you think anytime you go to a supermarket and there's a display there and there's a recipe card with um, some brand advertising something they'll have a recipe using their product. So that's what a food stylist job is, is to make that product look the best it can, but also make it the hero of that shot. So that may be hard when you're talking about mayonnaise, say, for example, and you've put that on a sandwich to showcase that being the star of that shot. You put that on a sandwich, you've got a protein, say ham and salad and stuff on that sandwich, how do you showcase the mayonnaise being the hero? You make sure that that shot is shot at the right angle. You make sure it's shot with enough light, focusing on the drips of mayonnaise coming down the front of the sandwich. So that's what a food stylist does. That's one example. But everywhere in society you turn, you'll see a shot of food somewhere along the lines. Food stylists can be involved in right down to things like movies. You think of the cartoon movie Ratatouille, um, for example. Uh, Thomas Keller, who's a really well-known chef, I believe, was the brains behind all the food in that movie. He was hired to create traditional French food that would be shot in that movie. It's an animated movie, but there, it needs to start somewhere with a basis. So a food stylist can do things as simple as making a sandwich or right up to being involved in uh, a full-length motion picture, I suppose. 
Yeah, that's cool. I guess I'd, I guess I've never seen a James Bond movie where he sits down to a plate of food and you look at it and go, hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it, it. It could be as simple as you know something in the background of a shot. Um, you pick up any glossy magazine these days; they're always uh, there's always something to do with food. It's in every part of media, right down to social media, as you will see food advertising. Whether it be advertising the local restaurant down the road, who have got a picture of their pizzas on their advertising. So at some point, someone's come out and they've photographed that food. Whether it's a professional food stylist doing the food for that or not is another thing. Yeah. So is a food stylist always a chef or are the two mutually independent? No, never, never always a chef. Um, matter of fact, in this industry, it's a little bit hard to get into food styling. Um, to do it full time is even harder. Uh, a lot of the time, shots you will see will come out of a commercial kitchen, and that may be someone who's just involved in food full time, and they've made that their job um, to do the food styling. A lot of, say your big magazines without name dropping like Mary Claire and stuff like that. I don't believe they all started with professional chefs doing the food for those uh, glossy magazines probably back in the 80s. But it's evolved that way. And I think that becomes that comes full circle with the popularity of being a chef these days with all you know the cooking shows on TV. It's it's seen as quite a a fashionable thing to be a chef these days. Mm, yeah, it sure is. And if you become a chef, it gives you a license to scream obscenities at people too. So that's always handy. You're, uh, apparently so. Apparently so. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what's the most interesting project that you've personally worked on? Um, so the company I work for, uh, which is Red Candy Creative Agency, um, about nine years ago, uh, the two ladies who own that uh, decided to self-publish a cookbook and had asked me to help them out with the recipes for that cookbook, which was a really exciting process because it was a, a concept they'd had, uh, which was a food and wine matching book. Um, they are very much creative minds who are involved in the hospitality industry and they are super knowledgeable when it comes to food, but they needed help in the writing of the recipes and the making of the food when it comes to creating the photos for the book. And I was super happy to be involved in that and it was probably one of the most exciting projects I've taken on with with that company, which was really good. Cool. So did you get an author credit on that? Um, no, I was credited as the chef on that. Um, all the recipes in that book were – I was – given a brief on and essentially helped write those those recipes from the brainchild of the ladies who wrote the book. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So getting into the nitty-gritty, are you able to reveal any tricks that food stylists use for making food look good? Um it's it's a there's there's a few tricks to making food look good. It's all about angles. It's about light. But a lot of the time that's left in the hands of the photographer. 
the food stylist has has the job of getting the food to the plate or whatever we're presenting on at the time. But one of the things you've got to be really careful with is making sure food doesn't look cold if it's supposed to be hot or making sure it's not weeping if it's supposed to be cold. Um, some of these shots can take up to an hour, hour and a half to get for each shot. So the trick there is to make sure that, say you're presenting red meat that's supposed to be cooked when it starts to go cold, the fat will start to solidify. So perhaps warming that somehow, whether that be with a blowtorch or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, little little tricks like that. Uh, other things, if uh, using little wedges of foam underneath the back of a product to lift it up so the angle is correct on the plate. Or yeah, there's some little tricks like using glycerine to make something shiny because a lot of the time the food doesn't get eaten afterwards. Just so when uh, the light hits the product, it shines in the right way. So there's a couple of little tricks. There's uh, there's probably a few more that we use every now and then, but they they would be the main ones. It's more about getting the right amount of food on in a shop without it looking overcrowded, um, but also making sure the product that is at, that you're shooting for is at the forefront. Right. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard about um, uh, food stylists using glue to, like, fix food in place. Is that just an urban legend or is that true? Um, I, think, I think it does happen in certain realms. I haven't encountered it because a lot of the shots that I've been involved in, you haven't really needed to do that. I think I think people want to see fresh food these days, and I think it would be too apparent if it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, And fixing food in place, you can do that with other things other than glue. You know, you're not shooting – something that's leaning down a hill or anything. So it should always be on a flat surface. So it shouldn't be that hard to, you know, to make something look stable on a plate. Mm. So, mate, can you walk me through a day in the life of a food stylist? Okay. So um, depending on what you're shooting, I suppose, uh, what would happen when you get to a set? A lot of the time the set is quite a relaxed place. It'll be at someone's house where there's plenty of light to set up, a plenty, a big enough table. Um, set up, the photographer will come in. They'll set all their screens up. They'll set all their photography gear up. This day and age, there's always a computer available so you can see live shots as well. Um, I go to the kitchen. I get all my ingredients together. Uh, we work map out our day in the way of what order the shots are going to be done in, and the way I do that is by selecting the dishes that I can put up at a faster rate. So if there's a roast on the menu, on the the shoot list for the day, um, it'd probably go towards the middle or the end of the day because if there's a salad that I can do before that, we get that out of the way. I start going ahead and getting everything prepped. Um, once everything's prepped, we look at all the props for each shot and 
what will happen from there is that the lady, the creative people, um, as a food stylist, as a chef is doing food styling, you'll always have some other creative people. Uh, that's the company I work for that really direct the way the client wants the photo to look. Um, they've given you a brief. There'll be a mood board around as well. And it's a very collaborative effort from there on. What's a mood board? So a mood board um, is all the information that you get from the client. Um, we want our food to be targeted at this market. We want it to be this colour palette. Um, and then what will happen, a lot of research online, seeing other photography shot in a very similar style, um, other products shot in a style that you're looking to do, um, a whole heap of photos to sort of as reference points. And then you'll probably have uh, some materials as in like different types of cloth or different types of wood that we're aiming to get into the shot. So that mood board will dictate how the shoot runs for the day. Oh, very interesting. Now, you mentioned before that it um, it's quite difficult for people to get into food styling these days. Um, could you give us a bit of an idea of if someone was really determined how they could get into food styling? Um, so food styling to get into – um, say it's a chef who wants to get into food styling. Being creative and having a broad knowledge is is key. Being willing to work with high end products and sort of uh, entry level commodity based products um, and everything in between, and having the knowledge to be able to switch multi cuisines and utilize their skill set that way that's that's what you really need a strong background in um i think from there if you really wanted to push into food styling which is a really it is a really hard market to push into um there are some courses you can do i know gourmet traveler are doing a course uh shortly i believe um they're offering a food styling course perhaps something like that. But getting in touch with a creative agency who has contracts with bigger food companies is always going to be your best bet because there will always be a, a liaison to the bigger brands who will outsource their food styling. So I hope that answers the question. I think it does. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. So it sounds yeah. like flexibility is key for people that want to become food stylists. You can't stay in your own niche. No, no. Flexibility is definitely key. Having a good um, demeanor, having a really nice, calm demeanor helps because the people, what you've got to remember, when you're food styling, you're catering to a customer's needs. You're catering to a client's needs and you need to be flexible and be able to think on your feet and be open to their suggestions and also point them in the right direction when they need to be. Um, as, a, as a chef stylist, I don't have to do a lot of that. Um, the creative agency I work for, 
they deal with the client directly. I've done a couple of sideline projects where I've had to deal with the client directly, but you've really got to be a, a passionate person who is outgoing to be able to do that sort of work. Right. Cool. Okay, so if I can bring it back to barbecue again now, um, how does being a food stylist help your barbecue and do you find that Primal Iron gets amazing presentation scores? All right. So how food styling has helped um, our barbecue is I think our hand-in boxes are getting better each time and I think that comes with an eye for detail. I think that comes with an eye for symmetry because symmetry is really important. It's really pleasing to the eye to open a box, I believe, and see symmetry and see um, perfect shapes. I think evenness is key to any any barbecue. I don't – when I look at a a hand-in box and don't see um, brisket cut the same way, um, different thicknesses or different lengths or not quite square in the box. That's when I, I, I think that that w- doesn't look quite as appealing. Um, so I think my food styling background has probably helped there, just in placement and eye for detail, like right down to a glaze on a chicken, seeing the black speck on one thigh that isn't on the other thighs and trying to, you know, make those changes. Yeah, right. Speaking of that chicken, I um I was actually your neighbour at Barbecue Wars and I um I saw your chicken when it came off the uh off the smoker. Man, it was just sensational. How did it do? Um, we didn't do as good as we'd hoped in chicken. We were a bit bold and um again we experimented a little bit. We put Crispy chicken skin in our box um, was delicious, I thought, but there was a bit of controversy with that being allowed or not being allowed. It was it was ruled that it was a legal thing to put in the box, but I think by that time um, it had done its damage by then, I suppose. Uh, our chicken itself was amazing. Again, I think uniformity was spot on. Uh, chicken isn't one of the cooks that I take care of, but when it comes to presentation, that was one of the things that I took charge of, um, I suppose, in putting everything in the box, just to try and make sure everything is symmetrical and lined up perfectly. But everyone gets a say in that. Every one of our team members is standing there ready with paper towel or take a photo, overhead photo to go, okay, look at this photo. They're not quite square. So, oh, That's a good trick. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. So taking that overhead photo is, if you've got the hands, it always, always helps. All righty. Now, I, I just want to clarify before, I, I didn't quite uh, make out what you said. Did you say that the crispy chicken skin was illegal or legal? Um, no, it's it's legal to do. Okay. Uh, yes, yes. It's. I believe the judgment, um, there was a bit of back and, back, back and forth on the ABA page about the crispy chicken skin, which was our team. Um, we, 
only used the smoker to to cook it. There was no deep frying. There was no nothing other than the heat from charcoal that made our skin crispy. Mm. But by the by the time it had been debated, I think the damage had been done. Mm. So yeah, right. Yeah. So you'd you'd obviously separated the skin from the piece of chicken and then cooked the skin separately. Yeah. So we we cooked um, skin on chicken thighs, and then we also had excess skin that we made some little crispy skin um, squares out of. So. Oh, sounds very cool to me. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it just got a little bit uh, lost in the box. Mm. Having having looked at the box in a number of times now I think if we'd left those out with the six perfect thighs in the box it may have done better but flavour was definitely bang on and you know it is we we know what we're getting ourselves into when we compete in barbecue it's open to interpretation it's open to, to people's palates it's open to what people find appealing and different people find different things appealing so the most we can hope for in these situations is to be happy with what we present. And we had a great time and we, we were super happy with what we presented. Mate, that's the most important thing. And a lot of the time it does come down to the luck of the draw of who's on the table that you happen to get your box put on. Yeah, exactly. So overall, as a as a career, I guess, how would you rate being a food stylist? Oh, it's one of the things I'm most passionate about because it's it varies so much. Like, the products I get to work with, and I don't food style each and every week. It's sometimes I can go months without doing a food styling gig, but when I do them, the products I get to work with may vary from a processed avocado product to a high-end cut of steak. Um, it varies that much, or it may be a processed... Um, salad dressing or something like that that I have to make different salads from and be creative in that way. It it, it really is it really is a a fun thing to do. The days are sometimes quite long. Um, the people I work with are amazing as well. They're really like minded. They are super positive people, and that's. That is what you get when you work with creative types, I suppose. You're listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. Local products don't get much more local than Ministry of Smokes Smoking Woods. An Australian family-owned company specialising in native hardwoods as well as fruit woods, Rod has never revealed his sources of his timber. But they do come from premium New South Wales and Queensland timber regions. I exclusively use Rod's products with Smoking Hot Confessions, and my favourites are his Ironbark and Applewood. And his Gigi Lump Charcoal is killer. Most exciting, Rod now produces his own range of pellets, including red wine, oak barrel, and Ironbark. These can be used in pellet grills and in smoker boxes in other types of barbecues. They're also great in the uni pellet pizza ovens for a delicious combination of smoke and pizza. As an added bonus, all his pellets are sold in food grade pails, so they're great for commercial operations as they can be repurposed. You can reach out to Rod on Facebook. Just search for Ministry of Smoke and shoot him a message. 
Okie dokie, Adam. We're now into segment three, which is, of course, our listener question time. And we've got some fantastic ones lined up for you today. So let's get stuck right into it. Are you ready? Yeah, super ready. All right. Let's hit it. Hi, Ben. It's Rowan from Tasmania. Rowan Slow Barbecue team. Question for Adam, Tube Styling. Just wondering uh, what he thinks about the old parsley in the box and how we present the boxes, whether or not, you know, he likes the kale better or the parsley and or whether he's got any other suggestions as to how he thinks it could be done better. Cheers. See ya. All right. Hey, Rowan. Thanks for the question, mate. Much debated recently, I think, this one. Um, so I'm going to say I'm pro-parsley in this situation. And I'll give you a reason why. Um, kale, for me, doesn't create a really even bed to lay your protein on in the box. At least with curly parsley, you can really trim that down to create quite a quite a good um, bed underneath, which is really even and springs back. And what that helps you with in barbecue, in my mind, is that it'll help all the proteins stand up the same. So with kale, I find you'll, you'll find that putting something like a chicken thigh or a lamb cutlet in, one will sit up, one won't. Um, I think with parsley, you create a more even playing field. And what parsley, I think, also does is hides all those little drips of sauce once you've like uh, you've brushed over your, your protein to give it that last-minute sheen. I think it hides those little drips of excess sauce a little bit better. As for offering a suggestion for how it could be done better, um, I've heard a lot of uh, chatter about just going to plain boxes with nothing in it. I think that's going to be just too messy. I think it, for me, from that that food styling standpoint, I don't want to see like drippy sauces in the bottom of a white styrofoam box. I think the parsley looks really nice and even and gives the eye something to gauge the edge of the box and also the edge of the meat by. So I, I hope that answers it. Thanks. Yeah, good response there, Adam. Um, someone once said to me that they were worried about putting hot meat on kale because that'll make the box smell funny. Have you ever found that? Oh, I think... I think you'd be hard-pressed to put – we all know how hot the meat is that we put into um, the boxes. It's not boiling hot as if it's come out of a 180-degree oven. I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to wilt kale to a point where it would smell. Not that I think kale really smells when you fry it anyway, but, um, yeah, I think think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to have that effect. Hi, guys. It's Dion from uh, Gloucester in the North Coast, New South Wales. Uh, hi, Adam. Basically, what's the most valuable tool you have in your toolkit for full, uh, food styling? Uh, thanks, mate. Hi, Dion. Um, mate, the most valuable tool in the kit, I think, is having multiple pairs of gloves that you can change between, often putting two or three pairs on at a time. So, when one gets dirty, you can just rip a pair off. Um, I think having someone standing by with a roll of paper towel is really handy. But most important tool for the food styling, if we're using food styling in a barbecue sense, that is, is 
maybe a set of tweezers that you can get in there and pick those little black spe- specks off that may be a little bit stray or when something's not quite right with the parsley. I think that would be, you know, one of the most handy things to to use for barbecue and food styling from a food styling standpoint, that is. But if you're talking about food styling from a the standpoint of styling food for a, a commercial use, I think maybe uh, just a good sharp knife to make clean lines and also uh, chef tweezers are a really handy thing. So when you've got some nice micro herbs you're trying to garnish with, you can move them really easily. How are chef tweezers different from regular tweezers? Um, so chefing tweezers um, are quite long and thin, you, you'll find. Uh, so you can, they're almost like holding a pair of chopsticks that's joined. Let's put it that way. So they're, they're easier to handle. They fit in the hand really, really easily. And you'll find a lot of high-end restaurants use them these days to garnish with. Ah, interesting. Hi, this is Rolf from Singleton. I'd like to ask Adam a question. Adam, what is the most difficult food to make look good? Thanks. Hi, Wal. Um, so most difficult food to make look good. Um, let's talk from a barbecue aspect first. I think anything pulled, pulled pork, pulled beef, pulled lamb, pulled chicken, I think any of that is hard to make look good. And that's, for me, I don't find it visually appealing, but I can see how it's visually appealing when it's dripping in sauce and it looks really umptious. But when you're talking about um, food styling, one of the things I find hard to make look good from a food styling aspect would be something like fried eggs or... um, Anything oily is is a little bit hard to make look good because the oil tends to want to pull or and not pull where you want it to pull. So, yeah, I think they they would be probably some of the hardest things to make look good. Cheers, Walt. Hi, this is Kevin from Sydney. Hi, Adam. Um, my question is, what inspirations do you draw upon uh, for your food styling? Thank you. Uh, hi, Kevin. So, inspirations, mate, drawing on for food styling. First and foremost, it depends what I'm styling. Um, it will be a little bit of research on on what it is that um, I am styling for the day, make sure I know the background of the product, and then try and draw inspiration that's warranted there, whether it be the type of cuisine or how the product is handled. Um, But a lot of the time, the inspiration comes from the mood boards, which I talked about earlier on, which is how a photo shoot for food styling is set up. Um, The directive given from the, the people hiring you to do the job. So that's where you draw your inspiration. That could be drawing from the color palette, that could be drawing from the product that you're using in the way the texture, the colour, um, flavour really doesn't come into inspiration. But you've also got to think, 
does that suit, it's someone going to look at that and say that that piece of ham is going to taste weird with that soya sauce. So drawing inspiration from the product itself to find like ingredients or ingredients that are going to match it. Thanks. Oh, hey, Ben. Uh, this is Mike from Brisbane. Adam, I was just wondering, what food styling tips can you give for any comp barbecuers out there who are looking to up their presentation scores uh, within, obviously, the limitations of the um, barbecue competition barbecue presentation rules? Thanks, mate. All right, mate. Um, so from a food styling aspect for barbecue teams, things that I notice um, – uh, symmetry. Symmetry in the box, I think, is key. Um, I'm slowly learning not to overcrowd the, the box as well, which is something I probably should have learned long ago from not overcrowding a, a plate of food. Um, and definitely making sure the sauce doesn't pull in any, any part of the protein that you're putting there, but also making sure it glistens from the sauce as well. I think anything dry that you put into the box is going to look that way when the judges open the box. So I think just making sure in some way that you make the protein shine, whether that be with a little bit of the animal's fat rubbed over the, the dry rub or that could be the sauce that you're going to coat the product in. I hope that helps. Would uh, would uh, um, I always mispronounce this? Jus, uh, ajou. Would that would that suffice? Yeah, the orju from your cooking liquid. Uh, I think that's the perfect uh, way to moisten a product. And having that just before it goes into the box, you're talking about slices of brisket. I think dipping them through the orju from the leftover injection and the fat that's rendered off your brisket, I think that's the perfect, perfect medium to put in there. Not only are you not adding a product that doesn't really belong to the brisket, but you, you're enhancing the visual appeal. This is Andy Groneman, and you're listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions. All righty, Adam. Before we uh, put this episode to bed, what would be your three top pieces of advice for people looking to get into food styling? All right. Three top pieces of advice. Being well-rounded when it comes to cuisine and really versatile when it comes to ingredient knowledge. Um, I think that's key. Uh, I think having a a really good attitude towards a client's needs is paramount. I think you, you really need to go into any food styling arrangement knowing that this isn't about you, it's about the client's needs and achieving that no matter what. And the third piece, if you're going to get into food styling or trying to get into food styling, is just try and to align yourself with people that are like-minded. Trying to align yourself with people who are taking photos of food regularly, who are seeing different aspects of the food industry really regularly. And sometimes that might be going to a bigger company who produce lots of different products 
that, you know, use food styles regularly. So I think those three bits of information would be key to trying to get into food styling. It is a really hard market to crack. Yeah, definitely, mate. Those are those are top tips. I like the last one about um, the importance of uh, networking and strategic relationships too. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think networking is key in any point in life. I think if you don't network, no matter how good you are at something, um, you're always going to get left behind. Okie dokie, Adam, the show is now yours, mate. Please give any shout-outs and thanks that you'd like to and tell the listeners where they can track you down. Uh, awesome, guys. So thanks for listening today, guys. Uh, a couple of shout-outs to start with. Uh, my employer and major meat sponsor, Prime Cup Meats Queensland. So if you're ever up this way in uh, the sunny state of Queensland, check us out. Um, if you're looking for meat for a comp when you're up this way, don't hesitate to call Prime Cup Meats and ask for Adam. Um, next one will be Red Candy Creative Agency. Uh, since I've started food styling, the, these lovely ladies at Red Candy have been the ones who have been my inspiration and allowed me to grow as a food stylist. Uh, I'm going to put a shout-out to my own source company called Devil's Pantry. Uh, check us out on our socials. You'll find us on Facebook, Devil's Pantry, and also on Instagram. If you just uh, look for Devil's Pantry on there, you'll see us pop up. Um, also, Primal Line. I can't forget the, the lads of Primal Line. So you've got Damien Draper, Matthew Redman, Carl Mitchell, and Dave Ashwin from uh, Barbecue's Galore at Kwana Waters. If you're ever up on a sunny coast, make sure you drop in and see Dave. There is that man. There isn't anything he doesn't know about barbecue. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Mate, uh, just before you go, don't forget to tell us how we can track you down on the internet. All right. So Prime Alliance, pretty easy to track down if you look up Prime Alliance Barbecue on Facebook and Instagram. And also check out my uh, source company, Devil's Pantry. Uh, we're on Insta and Facebook. If you just search Devil's Pantry, we'll pop up and you'll see us there. Check out for our, our stockist in Queensland, Victoria and New South Wales. That's beautiful, mate. I have tried those sauces and they are just delicious. So thanks so much for coming on to the show and revealing the world of food styling to us all. Um, I've really enjoyed our chat. I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed it too. So uh, thanks so much for all this and I really look forward to seeing you again at the next comp. Thanks, mate. I, uh, I had a great time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Well, family, there you have it. The confessions of a professional food stylist. I expect to check into Facebook and Instagram and see all your incredible new photos of your barbecue from here on out. Adam is a true professional and you can check out all his work by following him on Primal Lion Barbecue on Facebook and Instagram. Coming up next Thursday, Aussie barbecue legend and all-round good guy Gus from Gus Face Griller is stepping into the confessional. He's going to take us through his life as a barbecue blogger and all the opportunities that that's opened up for him. Take my word for it, the range is wide and varied and it's a ripper of a story. Big thanks and much gratitude go out to this episode's sponsors, Harvey's Kitchen, Jagged Wood-Fired Smoker Ovens and Ministry of Smoke. Their support makes this project possible. I've put their links in the episode description, so please click on through to their sites to claim those awesome offers for you loyal Smoking Hot Confessions listeners. If you have a message that you'd like included in this podcast to get out to a barbecue-mad audience send me an email directly at ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. Shoutouts also have to go to those who called in and left questions for Adam. 
Dion, Kevin, Linda, Matt, Mike, Rowan, and Wal. I found it really interesting to find out what you're thinking, and Adam had a great time answering all your questions too. Finally, however you're listening to this episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a review. This way, the episodes will be delivered to more people's devices by Chinese submariners as they take Harold Holt on his undersea adventures. Until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions. Confessions.